0: Let's open the Word of God to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Hear the Word of the Lord. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Amen and amen. Paul begins this section of Romans, this 13th chapter, with the most complete treatment of the Christian's relationship to civil authority found anywhere in the Bible. And he starts off by saying, let every soul. And so I want to get your individual, personal attention by these words. Let every soul. Now there were Jews that were in the church of the Romans because it tells us in Romans chapter 2, it has these kind of words. Behold, thou art called a Jew. There were Jews in that church. Let's think about the Jews hearing those words about submission to the pagan polytheistic jehovah hating religion and government of the romans the best evidence we have that is this epistle was written in the early years of nero's reign nero reigned from the year 54 to 68 when vespasian took over just before titus destroyed the city of jerusalem so 54 is when nero took over the best estimates that we have this epistle was written about 57 or 58 AD. So Nero was the emperor of Rome, the Roman empire. The Jews saw themselves as God's chosen people. And guess what? They were God's chosen people that could never submit to Gentiles. They had been given a piece of property in this world at the Eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, and they had been told to conquer and annihilate all the nations that lived on that property. And it was theirs from God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob And there were now Romans occupying that land and marching in their streets and demanding taxation from them. If ever a nation had a constitutional right to resist and rebel, it was Israel against the occupying foreign government of pagan Rome. And their constitution that they could appeal to was the Old Testament scriptures inspired and written by the finger of God and given to Moses and brought down from Mount Sinai to that nation. And the other nations of the world did not know about their scriptures. Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. If there was ever a right for a constitutional argument, it was the argument of the Jews against the Roman occupation of the Holy Land. And back then it was holy because it was still the land that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and their descendants. Rome had made Judea a province. That's where the name Judea came from. Remember, there was a tribe called Judah, but it was called Judea because it was a province of the Roman Empire for about a hundred years before the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans with an appointed king, King Herod, first of all, Herod the Great, that uh, you know, as one of his decisions of government, he killed all the children born around Bethlehem at the time of Christ. Now, hello, when was the last time that happened in our country? The powers that be. That was the power that was. You need to read about Herod the Great and how many of his family members he assassinated and killed. You need to do that. I've read some horrible things this past week about the Roman government and the intrigues and the murders and the assassinations. Senators by Caesars. Caesars by senatorial conspiracies. Conspiracies. Caesars by their wives, Caesars by their mothers, Caesars killing their mothers and their wives. Unbelievable, the powers that be. And you're a Jew, and you're sitting in the capital city. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because Joseph took his espoused wife Mary to Bethlehem to do what? To pay taxes to the Roman government. They hadn't asked for the Roman government. The Roman government had taken over their nation. In Luke chapter 13, the Lord Jesus Christ was confronted with an event where Pilate had mingled the blood of some Jews while they were offering sacrifices. Do you remember that in Luke 13? While they were worshiping, while they were at church, Pilate's soldiers busted in on them, and slew them while they were worshiping. The powers that be. You're a Jew. You know about these events. These events are recorded for us in the Bible. I'm not referring to any other source document but the Bible. How and why did the Jews come and confront the Lord Jesus Christ about paying tribute to Caesar? Did they confront the Lord Jesus Christ about that because the Jews liked to give tribute to Caesar? I'm just... I'm helping you through some elementary reasoning when you read the Bible. Or did they confront the Lord Jesus Christ about it because there was a very strong nationalistic feeling and passion among the Jews that they shouldn't have to pay taxes to Caesar? Okay, so you understand that. The Jews understood that Rome was their enemy and that if they did not toe the line the Romans would come and take away their nation and house of worship. Did the Jewish leadership say that in John chapter 11? Did the Lord inspire Caiaphas to say something about the soon death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, and I've preached on that before. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 2, it tells us that Claudius Caesar, that's the Caesar before Nero, had issued a decree that all Jews had to get out of Rome. Because Rome hated Jews. The powers that be. Now you're a number of years later and you're under Nero's rule. And Jews have come back into Rome. And you get an epistle from the Apostle Paul. I want you to put yourself in a Jewish person that is sitting in that church that has this epistle read to them. And the words sounded like this. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now does it carry a little bit of weight with you to think through those Bible descriptions, the Bible descriptions of what it was like to be a Jew under Roman oppression and Roman government? The Gentiles received this epistle in the Roman church. Emperor Caligula, Emperor Claudius, The two in order preceding Nero were assassinated before Nero. The political and sexual crimes were legion. It's hard to believe it when you read it. Nero was a very perverse and violent emperor whose reputation in history is well known. As history would describe him. Gentile converts were often Jewish proselytes. In which case they had similar ideas to the Jews about submitting to the Romans. Gentile converts were also saved from the polytheistic excesses of Greece and Rome to the monotheism of Jehovah worship. One God, that's what I mean. Polytheistic is just a whole bunch of deities. Monotheism is the worship of one God and his name is the Lord Jehovah and his son is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now they're, they're being told that they as Christians who have a king named Jesus are supposed to submit themselves to a man just down the street who murdered his mother and who's a polytheistic worshiper of multitudes of gods. They're supposed to obey him. He crucified the Lord of glory. That government crucified Jesus Christ. That government cut the head off of James. That government tried to kill Peter. That government had Paul imprisoned. That government? That government. In either case, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, submission to a pagan government that sought emperor worship created conflict. Serious conflict. Worse conflict than we have. But let's talk about us. Americans of the 21st century are as bad as any criticizing resenting or disobeying civil powers it seems like we have been enabled or empowered from birth that it's our right to speak up and to speak out and to criticize government to make fun to tell jokes to draw cartoons you know the editor, editors of our papers you there's so many cartoons drawn to make fun of our president it's like it's it's inbred in us as americans And we don't want to be like that. The origin of the nation was in disdain for England and its king's authority and compensation to that king. Just because we weren't represented sufficiently in parliament, because we were a colony, there was revolution. It's called the American Revolution. Infatuation by some of our U.S. Constitution, a piece of paper, justifies civil rebellion by their interpretation of it. Not a legal interpretation of it, their interpretation of it. They presume by slanted evidence that America was built by Christians to be a Christian nation. Which doesn't matter. I don't know how that affects us today, except they use it to justify rebellion. They not only think it's their privilege, but even their duty, even a Christian duty to rebel, to fight. I need to fight for what is right. Right. It doesn't matter what a leader does. It doesn't matter what a government does until they cross this simple line. When they forbid us from doing something God has commanded or they require us to do something God has condemned or there is life at stake. Until those two conditions are met, we submit and we pay and we honor and we're thankful. We will resist when they tell us we can't do something God has required and when they tell us we must do something God has prohibited. We have plenty of Bible examples of those choices and we would make those choices again but we are not even close to those choices. Not even close to them. I'm going to get closest to them first. when it becomes a hate crime against the nation for me to preach against certain sins condemned in the Bible. We will not go out of our way, but we will not back down either. But we're not there. I've told you what website I go to every now and then to make sure it's still there. Just to make sure that our government still protects in their confused way of understanding it the right of free speech. Brethren, if I was the president of these United States, that building housing that website would be leveled to the ground and a hole would be dug and a chicken farmer would not have to worry about the excess from his farming operation because it would be heaped up right on that piece of ground because of the caricatures made of the president of the United States out of that church's website. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't listen well. But I'm not going to repeat it right now. You can ask me about it later. So Americans have their problems. So when we look at this verse in the first sentence, let every soul... The apostle just doesn't start off by saying, there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. He starts off by going right after each of us. Let every soul... And so we want to put ourselves in that every soul. Why do you think that you believe you're an exception to this call of duty by the Lord Jesus Christ and His Apostle right. to submit, to be in subject to our government? Let every soul be subject. What does it mean to be subject? Subject means to be under the dominion, the dominion or rule of a sovereign or a conquering or ruling power, owing allegiance to... Or obedience to a sovereign ruler or state. A temporal or spiritual lord or other superior. That's what it means to be subject. To put yourself under. Let's put it in synonyms that you may understand. It means to accept, to submit, to obey, to pay, to pray, to yield, to reverence, to knuckle under, and to comply with. That's what it means to be subject. Let every soul be subject. The reader in the church at Rome reads the epistle from Paul. And so we read it. And we humble ourselves before these words. These are the words of God. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the High King of Heaven. He has instituted civil authority. He has put the men in those offices that are in them. He has stirred up those men for whatever they are doing at a given point in time. And let every soul be subject. Look at some Bible usage. Do you remember Luke 2.51? Jesus was subject to his parents. That means he was under their dominion. He obeyed them. He honored them. He did what they told him to do. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.58. How far does this word subject go? Well, let's look at some Bible examples. Let every soul be subject you can tell that it's pretty thorough because Romans 13 talks about paying taxes and not displeasing this government figure and ruler. First Corinthians 15, 58. It's verse 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him that god may be all in all the man christ jesus when it says he will be subject to god in 1st corinthians 15:28 does that mean partial does that mean complete full joyful complete thankful submission and subjection of course you know it's the latter look at 1st timothy 2:11 1st timothy 2:11 let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Should a woman be subject to her husband? There it is in the Bible. Well, there's the same words. Let. Let every soul be subject. Romans 13. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. What's the woman's exception to be her subjection? The same as a Christian's to the government. When her husband tells her to do something God has forbidden... Or when her husband forbids her from doing something God has commanded. Or when life is at stake. Until then, submit yourselves to your own husbands in everything. And we don't have to talk about exceptions. As soon as you smell a person wanting to talk about exceptions, you've met a scorner and you've met a rebel. That's all they're asking for. They are not asking because they are interested in truth. When they start just pushing their questions about exceptions... Let them prove to us their integrity by humbling themselves before the word of God and rejoicing in what it does say. What what does it say? Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. And it doesn't mention any exceptions. Paul would never write or preach that way. Jesus would never write or preach that way. You have to go digging somewhere else in the Bible to find the exceptions. Because if you teach the exceptions at the same time you're teaching the rule, you really don't teach anything at all. So I'm just just giving you the exception, and I'm just going to continue on in setting up this passage where it belongs. See, women don't have a problem submitting to their husbands because their husbands are asking them to do something that is contrary to God's word. Women just flat out have a problem submitting to their husbands. Children don't have a problem submitting or obeying and honoring their parents because their parents are asking them to do something that the Bible prohibits. Children have a problem of submitting and obeying and honoring their parents because they have an innate, natural man that has a problem with submitting and obeying and honoring parents. And that's the way it is with government. We don't have to worry about the exceptions. We need to, first of all, establish the rule. Right. And the rule is, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. And here is an example of that kind of terminology used relative to the woman. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let every soul be subject. What is another name for citizens in a monarchy? Subjects. I wonder what that means. That means they're in subjection. I wonder what that means. They're under the power and dominion and orders of a supreme authority under a king. First Peter 2.18. Now these, some of these are useful. See, I just used the woman comparison. And the Lord made those arrangements of the words. And the Bible tells us to compare spiritual things with spiritual in 1 Corinthians 2.13. We'll look at 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, be subject. Oh, you're kidding. I've got to be subject to someone else? Servants. Do you know how much a servant would love to go to work someday and find an email in his inbox? Good morning, servant. This is your master. I've had a good weekend. And I've been thinking, I want you to be master. So you go ahead and take over my office. And I want you to have a good life. I don't want you to be under my authority anymore. Every servant wants to be free, right? Because see, we're taught that every day of our lives in America. Do you know how wonderful it is to have someone take all the capital risk and provide food and lodging for you as long as you you get up and put in a few hours' worth of work for them? You say, are are you saying that you'd like to be a slave? I didn't go quite that far. I'm just saying that most men have lived that way in the history of the world, and the Bible addresses them very plainly. And what does the Bible say? Go in and ask your master if you can be free? No, it says this, servants, be subject. Sounds just like Romans 13, 1. It sounds just like 1 Timothy 2, 11. Servants, be subject to your masters with begrudging respect, with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. You know, as we look at these comparisons that the Holy Spirit gives us, we should not have to need much explanation in Romans 13. It doesn't matter whether our government is nice or not. It doesn't matter whether our government keeps its word toward us or not. Whether a government keeps its word or not does not have anything to do with the issue of you subjecting yourself to that government. And it's the same way with masters or employers. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. This is the way children should honor parents. It doesn't matter if the father doesn't keep his word once. You know, he promised the family a vacation in June. And things at work come up so that he cannot keep his commitment to take the family on a vacation in June. Does that give the children the right to disobey or to march on his bedroom in July? No. No. And I'm going through these illustrations because I want you to be able to answer those that ask you, well, what about if the government does this? Or what about if the government does that? You can just reason back. Well, what if I did that? Do I still expect my wife to submit? What if I did that? Do I still expect my children to obey? It's one of the easiest ways to reason through the Scripture just by comparing spiritual things with spiritual. There's five spheres of authority and they're all to be obeyed. So here we have the word subject. That's what we're looking for. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for... What is that word there in 1 Peter 2.19? Conscience. Are we going to run into that word in Romans 13, 1 through 7 Because there's two reasons we're supposed to obey civil government. Number one, they can hurt us bad. Number two, for conscience toward God. Same thing. A master can't hurt you as much as a government can. The master may carry a whip, the king carries a sword, and he bears it for revenge. And then we and you've been, we've had this passage before. For a man toward conscience endure grief, suffering wrongfully. That means that the master has policies in place that are costing you, and he is wrong, and you are right. You still submit with all fear. And when the government does that, it doesn't matter. They're still the ones in authority, and we still obey. It doesn't matter what they do personally. It doesn't matter what they do professionally. It doesn't matter what they do in the form of laws that don't impact us directly. And it doesn't matter if they impact us, as long as they don't cross the line that has already been mentioned. You know, look at uh, Romans 13, 5, about this word subject, so we can just see that it's there again. Romans thirteen five says, wherefore ye must needs be subject. And the word is also used in Titus 3, 1, which I began our day with several hours ago. Titus 3 and verse 1, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers to obey magistrates. Put them in mind to be subject. When we are subject, that means that we are under the dominion. We are under the rule of a sovereign or a conquering or ruling power that we owe that authority allegiance or obedience. It means to accept, submit, obey, pay, yield, reverence, and knuckle under. Kings or any civil authority exists by the submission of citizens to it. The smoothest operation of government is when all the citizens are obedient to their civil authority. And it's commanded in the word of God. It's commanded here in Romans 13. God set up these five spheres of authority. What would a marriage be without a husband-wife relationship the way God described it? What would a family be without parents over children? What if children were over parents? What if it was all just the imagination of cavemen that had chased a rabbit down and beat it to death with sticks and were roasting it on a spit over a fire and they decided that marriage sounds like a neat idea? It it all comes from the Lord. He instituted these five spheres of authority. And see, first of all, you had to have a marriage because there were only two people on the planet and they weren't parents. They were Adam and Eve. So the first sphere of authority, and you just progress through the Bible, there comes a sphere of authority. I will make him and help meet for him. So the woman's a helper of the man. That is her role. A good woman will get up every morning and remind herself, my purpose today is to help my man. And then because she was so involved in the fall of man and Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3 adds to her burden by saying, Your desire will be to your husband, and he shall rule over thee. Genesis three, sixteen. And then along come Cain and Abel. So then we have parents. You know, we still don't have three spheres of authority. Then we have employment, and up comes master-servant. Then we have a proliferation of people, and population groups are spreading. And so the first kingdom in the Bible... Is Babel. And who was the first king? Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. See, the Lord had already made him special. He was already stronger and more powerful than other men, and so he automatically rose like cream and milk to the top and became the leader of a kingdom at Babel. Now, God had a few things to do to that kingdom, and He did that in chapter 11. I'm reading to you, I'm quoting to you from Genesis chapter 10. But I want you to understand where these authorities, fears come from. And when God institutes one for it to work well, all the citizens should be obedient to it. And the more the citizens are obedient, and the more the citizens are respectful, the less enforcement responsibilities there are on those in authority, and they can apply themselves to making life better for us instead of just defending themselves. So we have passages like this in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 24, and it's painful. It's painful if you have a problem with authority. What does it mean to be subject? It means to get down under them and stop criticizing or thinking about changing them. It's what we want our wives to do regarding husbands. It's what we want our children to do regarding us as parents. It's what we want our employees to do when we're an employer. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 21, My son, fear thou the Lord, and the king. They're in order. We fear God first, then the king. But they're closely connected because the king's fear is put in us by the Lord. And we make an oath to kings of citizenship. They especially did in the Bible. God save the king. What do those words mean? That is an oath. God gave us that king. God saved the king. And we will obey the king. It started in the Bible. Where those words came from, my son, fear thou the Lord and the King, and meddle not with them that are given to change. Do not get mixed up with, do not associate with, do not get involved with those that are given to changing government for their calamity. That's the them. Of the last half of verse 21. There is a plural pronoun referring to the antecedent, which is a pronoun of them. That's those that are given to changing government. For their calamity shall rise suddenly. God, They're going to bring upon themselves damnation. Their calamity shall rise suddenly. And who knoweth the ruin of them both. Them both. So there's two parties here. Two parties. Those that are given to change and those that meddle with them. If you read the junk, if you read and involve yourself in the junk put out by conspiratorialists, put out by those that have anti government agendas, put out by those that want to criticize our president, you are in these two verses. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. How are we subject? We don't talk about running them out of office. We don't talk about how much we dislike them. We don't talk about how we would like to run government any more than you want your wife doing those things to you or your children doing those things to you. This is the word of the Lord. This is how it works smoothly. When we submit, you say, well, what if I don't like them?" It doesn't matter. Your opinion is zero. It is the null set in the scheme of things of the universe. God doesn't care what you think. God put a man there because he thinks better thoughts than you think. President Obama is better for our nation than President Romney. That's why there is no such person as President Romney. Right. You say, Mitt Romney would have been better. Can you prove to me that a Mormon would be better than a Muslim? How are you going to prove it to me? God's in charge of all these things. We trust Him. And these verses are very sober because when we look at Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 and it says, if we resist, we bring upon ourselves damnation. Well, what does it mean to resist? It means we won't pay our taxes. It means we don't give them honor. You know, a soldier walks down the street and we go over to the other side and turn our back to a Roman soldier. We don't give honor to whom honor is due. If those Roman soldiers wanted the people to salute as they went by, then you better salute. If those Roman soldiers could just stop you in the street and say, would you carry all my equipment for a mile or so? You carry the equipment. You don't spit on his boots. You know that everything is an American. We want to think you spit on his boots. That's what I think of you Romans. Is that a great man? That's scum. Now you can, by email, by phone, and by the stuff you read, and the people that you intermeddle with, the people that you talk to about government, you can do that. And that's resisting authority. Because fear belongs to those that should get fear, and honor belongs to those that get honor. And if it was done right, everything would run smoothly, and government wouldn't be as expensive as it is. And if it was done right, then you would have a happier marriage and you would have a happier home because it would be done there as well. Do you want your wife always being a cheerful, doting, loving, humble, reverence, reverencing darling? Of course you do. Do you want your children to happily sit at the table and smile at each other and before you can take the first bite? They all say, Daddy, we love you. And brother, I love you. And sister, I love you and I am thankful to be at this table with this man at the head of the table. That's what you all want, right? But you're a sinner. You sin every day of your lives. Half the decisions you've made for your family are really, if they were brought to the church, stupid. So should children still do that? Oh, it would be so nice. And I want to thank... I want to thank everyone that would that has to admit that they're one of my children for their submission and subjection to a man with many faults. I used to be involved in Proverbs twenty four, twenty one, and twenty two. The only time I'll ever look at that junk now is to laugh at it and realize how retarded, moronic nonsense it is. They don't have a clue. I especially love the ones that say they have insider information. They are so ignorant of government affairs that if Jesus Christ were on earth and executing decisions himself, he would take them out and shoot them all, every single one, like rabid dogs because they don't have inside information. They don't have any clearance at all, nor that they have understanding of authority at all, or they wouldn't even talk that way. They are rabid dogs. That is is Second Peter 2, verses 10 through 12. That is Jude 1, verses 8 through 10. Amen. The strongest language in the New Testament is reserved for those that like to speak evil of dignities. Amen. Yes. They have no idea what goes on in government. They are so simple and so blinded by their stupidity and ignorance. They want to weigh in on matters they don't have a clue about. Those matters are way up here. And they're way down here, little serfs, They need to have a hoe and be out in the garden raising their food. And I'm being very kind and nice. Remember to mark your calendar because I'm being discreet right now for what I'd like to say. That's how much I hate that stuff because God hates it. And I'm going to hate it to honor God because God sets up the kings that he gave us. And we are to honor them. Did Did you read Jeremiah 27 last night? I asked you to read Jeremiah 27. Did you obey the little tiny bit of authority that your pastor has? Did you read that chapter? Did you read where there was a message sent to the nations of the Middle East? Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king of Babylon, is my servant. And if you want your nation to survive, you will submit to my servant King Nebuchadnezzar, if you rebel against my servant Nebuchadnezzar, I will destroy your nation and it will be never known again. Right, right. That's the word of the Lord. Well, who was Nebuchadnezzar? Pagan, haughty, arrogant, destroyer of Jerusalem. Was this before or after he met the Lord? It was before he met the Lord. He was his servant. President Barack Hussein Obama, our president, is the Lord's servant. And we subject ourselves to him. We don't talk with anarchists and conspiratorial patriots who are nothing but anarchists. They haven't done this country a bit of good. I've read their junk since the 60s. They haven't done anyone any good anywhere, and they haven't changed our country one whit except to give us all a black eye and a spot on us that we would ever read stuff so ignorant and so ridiculous as the junk that I read back in the 60s and 70s. The prophecies that they made and the warnings they made, not a single thing has come to pass. They don't have a clue about what goes on in government. They don't have a clue about the sovereignty of God and the Lord puts up kings and puts down kings whenever he chooses. And they are such a small minority anyway, they just have big mouths. They couldn't move a single thing. And there's a big mouth on the radio. Just remember, every time you're listening to them, Proverbs 24, 21, and 22, so it might limit your time with them. Their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both? Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 20. Earlier today, we looked at verse 4 of this chapter. Now look at verse 20. Ecclesiastes 10:20. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Ecclesiastes ten twenty curse not the king, no, not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber, for a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. You know, little little pawns and serfs have long wanted to rail on the rich. And the little pawns and the little serfs would all starve to death if it wasn't for the rich. Or they'd be eating turnips every single day raw because they wouldn't have means to cook them. Because it's the rich that provide the capital and take the risk and have the brains to make large enterprises in order to employ the poor that would otherwise be grabbing a hoe to eke a living out of the earth. Do you know why there's no advances in the Amazon or in Papua New Guinea? Because there's no capitalist there. Do you know if you let go a capitalist there with in one or two years, the changes that would take place? What is a capitalist? A man with a lot of money. It's the rich. You know, I've read it my whole life. I've, I've been taught to hate the Rothschilds. What's wrong with the Rothschilds? They financed kings. Whenever kings needed to make a loan, they came to the Rothschilds. You got a problem with that? That's good business. Well, what if one king wants to fight another king? Finance them both. That's the ultimate business deal. Taught my whole life. Hate the Rockefellers. Baptists. Hate the Rockefellers. No one's ever met the Rockefellers. And if you took ten of these people and squared their intelligence, they wouldn't be able to do what a Rockefeller does in one day in their whole life. The enormity of the decisions they make that run enterprises, that large. I'm not a worshiper of the Rockefellers or the Rothschilds. I just want to make a point to you that I've been taught all my life to hate the rich. And then along comes one verse out of 31,101 in a King James Bible, and I look at it and I say, what in the world and who are the world are the rich? Curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. J.P. Morgan. Appreciate those men. The History Channel has a wonderful series about them that built America. Fabulous. It takes so much money to provide electricity. You know, all you can think about is Thomas Edison fiddling around in his garage dropping out of the third grade because God gave him the ability to make witty inventions and he comes up with a light bulb And you think, oh, everybody's got light now. Thomas Edison made a light bulb. But how do you put electricity in every home in a city? I see an electrical engineer thinking about it. In a city the size of New York, how do you make it happen? It takes a little bit of this and a whole lot of courage and a whole lot of competition because there were companies that were competing for that business to light New York City. And what man is going to step out there and risk his fortune to give you light in your house that you will pay 15 minutes worth of work for to have light every night when you go home? Isn't that wonderful? Love the rich. Be thankful for them. Be thankful for the risks that they take. And don't curse the king. No, not in thy thought. This is what it means. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Don't curse our president. Don't tell jokes about our president. Don't run our president down. Don't rail on our president. Don't speak evil of dignities. Give him the benefit of the doubt until he says that we cannot worship the Lord Jesus Christ in this house. Give him the benefit of the doubt that he has a reason for what he's doing. Sometimes it's harder than at other times. Do you know what you want your wife to do when you make a decision? For her to give you the benefit of the doubt. Do you know what you want your children to do? To give you the benefit of the doubt. When you make a decision that they don't understand, that is what you want your children your wife to do, you had better give that or you're not going to get that. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's what it means to be subject. Look at Job chapter 34. Do you like Elihu? Do you think Elihu knew a thing or two? Job 34, well, look at what he said. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. The Lord's brought us a long way. If there's a little bit further that we can go, let's go that little bit further. He's brought me a long way. I'm very thankful. Job 34. Verse 18. Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked? And to princes, ye are ungodly. Those are rhetorical questions. Do they get yes answers or no answers? Well, you find out by going to verse 19. How much less to him that accepteth not the persons of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. It is not fit to say to a king that he is wicked, or to princes ye are ungodly. And it certainly isn't. If it's, if, it's, if it's not to do it to a prince on earth, how much less is it to do it to God in heaven? Elihu's answering Job. You should not be talking the way that you're talking about God because you know that you wouldn't talk this way to a king or a prince. Yes, here, here goes the hand. I see it. I'm sorry that you have a question. Well, what about John the Baptist? When you're John the Baptist, okay, when you're John the Baptist and your mother was barren and you were given a very special mission from God and you spent your whole life in the wilderness and you lived your whole life as a Nazarite, when that occurs, and when you are the voice of the Lord crying in the wilderness, making ready a people prepared for the Lord, then you can walk to Washington and tell them that they're wicked. Until then, be quiet. And mark your calendars a second time. It amazes me. Why would anybody ask about John the Baptist? Why would they ask? I want, I, I want you to think about why they ask. Because they want to be able to talk that way about government. They think it's their right to talk that way about government. We don't want to speak evil of dignities. Do they commit crimes? Yes, we want to be very careful about how we speak about it. If it's in a historical context where we are just simply recounting some events of history, we want to be very careful even about that. And I've tried to be careful even in this sermon speaking about some things of the Roman government. Those are the powers that were in those days. We want to be very respectful so that we don't speak evil of dignities. Do you like Elihu? I think you like Elihu. In this church, we like Elihu. Amen. Is it fit? Is it fit? No. Is it fit? to a child at the dinner table, to say to a father, you're wicked. Now do I have the point across? Is that the way things are done? No. What good does that accomplish? Even if he was. Under the higher powers. Very quickly, look at Luke chapter 12 and verse 11. These are not ministers of the gospel. These are civil rulers. It's a shame that we have to spend any time on that. Just let me make, I'll make just a couple introductory remarks and we will end today. Luke twelve eleven. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ said. He told those that He sent out, and when they bring you unto the and when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. Luke twelve eleven, he promises his apostles that the Holy Ghost would teach them in the same hour what was going to come out of their mouths when they were on trial, that they shouldn't worry about it, and they shouldn't prepare for it. He would enable them to speak well. These were fishermen. They weren't prepared to speak in court. and But the Lord was going to make them very competent. But notice what it says, magistrates and powers. See, powers is associated with magistrates because it's a civil office. It's not a ministerial office. Look at Titus chapter 3 again for the third time today. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers. What's a principality? The first five letters tell you what a principality is. What are the first five letters of principality? Prince. A principality is a prince. It's a position of dignity, a dominion of a prince or chief ruler, sovereignty or supreme authority. Principality. What does the word power mean? One that is possessed of or exercises power, influence, or government, an influential or governing person, body, or thing. In early use, one in authority, a ruler, a governor. That's what a power is. When it's referred to like that, as a noun, a power. And a principality and a magistrate. What's a magistrate? A civil officer charged with the administration of the laws. A magistrate. A member of the executive branch of government. Those are the three terms that the Bible connects together. So when it says under the higher powers we are talking about civil authority and there is much more that can be said, let me close with this passage from 1 Samuel 2. I want a woman to weigh in on us. A woman writer by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Samuel chapter 2. I want to see the comfort that we can have and why we should submit because God is the authority of this universe. He is the supreme ruler of all and He has given some of His authority to men and these men are called gods in the Bible. For any of you who looked up Psalm 82 and verse 6, These civil rulers are called gods. If you go to Exodus chapter 22 and verse 28, they are called gods. When the Lord Jesus Christ reasoned that he should be allowed to call himself the Son of God in John chapter 10, he appealed to Psalm 82 and verse 6 and said the scripture cannot be broken, meaning the word God is exactly the word that should be in Psalm 82 and verse 6 for civil rulers with a little g. Gods. They're gods because God put some of his authority on them and they should be treated with fear and reverence and respect like God, though subordinate to him, of course. Right. And, in li- and in line with that, Hannah's prayer in First Samuel 2. Hannah prayed and her heart's rejoicing in the Lord in verse 1, but notice what she says. In verse 6 she's just going through all the things that the Lord does because she is recounting what he's done for her by by a barren woman having many children. And he, and he just makes the she makes these comparisons that the Lord does in his government of the world. Verse 6, the Lord killeth and maketh alive. He does both of those things. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. The whole earth in its civil social structure sits on pillars. And the Lord is those pillars, and the Lord sets the men in those pillars, and the Lord raises them even from a dunghill to be in the throne of glory. Can you think of any examples? How low was Joseph before he sat in the throne of Egypt? How low was David before he sat in the throne of Israel? How low was the Lord Jesus Christ before he sat on the throne of thrones? And this is Hannah in her prayer reminding us where the authority comes from, who's in charge of it all, and who we're actually worshiping when we submit and subject ourselves to the authorities He's put over us. We're worshiping God. We're worshiping God. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's And He hath set the world upon them. Put your trust in the Lord. Hannah knew where to put her trust. He had taken care of her and by inspiration and prophecy, here she describes the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David. May the Lord bless us to put our trust in Him. And whenever you see a picture of our president or whenever you read about anything that's happening in Washington, I hope that you can give them the benefit of the doubt. Be thankful for them. Realize all the blessings we have. And remember... If you're a father, treat your president the way you want your children to treat you. If you're a husband, treat the president the way you want your wife to treat you. If you're an employer, treat the president the way you want your employees to treat you. And you'll do right well. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. Thank you, Heavenly Father.